But I want you to note how cool your pastor, Michael, is. Because look at what he put up at the top of the new version. Weaving it all together. Confessions, Reformation, Social Justice, and the Sermon on the Mount intersecting the Boston Declaration. So this whole year, this class, Westminster class, brilliant, just give them to those young scholars back there. Um, this whole class, this whole year, has been like woven together perfectly. And so now, as a class, next week you get one more opportunity to sit at tables. And it would be great if you could familiarize yourself with some of these issues that they pointed out that Christians ought to be concerned about. And then next week we'll sit at tables and discuss again and try to tie together what you've learned, not just in this course, the Sermon on the Mount, Francis, and all of that, but also what you've learned throughout the whole year. It's been an amazing, <laughs> I was like so stunned when I looked at all the stuff that you guys got exposed to this year. It's just really, Dan and the committee did a beautiful job. Pastor Michael did a great job of setting the tone, so it's really cool. And also, the leaders next week. Uh, of course, you know, from the Sermon on the Mount, what did we learn? Uh, Zev used a fancy word. What did he call the Sermon on the Mount? It's called, it's a vocal, vocal vidi, uh, Latin uh, vocal exam, uh, oral exam. No one knows it? A repristination of the Torah. You remember that? You should remember. A repristination of the Torah. So, and then, and do you remember what he said about the Beatitudes when he taught on that? Don't take it personally. <laughs> Can you just give me like 10 seconds? What, what was the core of the Beatitudes? What did you say at the end of that lecture that was so awesome? No, the as if concept, yes, that's the overarching idea, but of the Sermon on the, I mean, of the Beatitudes in particular, Zeb said something at the end of his lecture of what this is, what is Jesus doing? That's true. It, it's living as if kingdom is now, but at the end, he said something about those beatitudes of what they represent at the core, the essence. What is it? Counterculture, overturning of the existing structures, complete reversal of this world structure, right? Yeah. Am I doing okay with the gist of it? Do you, do you remember this? It is a complete reversal of everything this world stands for. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who believes that? What does this world believe? Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the meek. What's the world believe? Blessed are the strong. So it's a complete reversal of everything. And so um, we're going to have a reversal next week in terms of leadership. See all those young, beautiful scholars sitting over there? Those... <clears throat> Two beautiful young little, uh, women, John. Yeah, well, they're going to be at separate tables, so there's not going to be any collusion. Uh, and uh, uh, Madeline here, they're going to lead the discussions. They will be at a table, you will go to a table, and they will facilitate. And so what you have to do is allow the young people to uh, have their voice heard and talk with them and interact with them and have a great discussion on what you, yeah, did you want to say something? No, okay. Okay, so that's what we're going to do next week. And uh, for this week, uh, we're going to have a little discussion about Francis. But before we do, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for 
calling us to follow you and be a part of the kingdom that you are building now. And we confess that we are not always doing very well. And we need your grace and your power to help us to be what you want us to be, the salt and the light of this world. So help us today as we study. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher to the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's um, talk about uh, question and answers on the sultan and saint. And a joke, since Zev is here, you can ask any question under the sun. What did you think about that video? Father, forgive him. He knows not what he does. <laughs> the video that you saw last week. You weren't here, so. Very enlightened. You can, you can get it. It's circulating. I don't know where it is right now. Pastor Dave had it. Cindy had it. It's on the website. Yes. I'm sorry, that's my fault. Um, because As you were watching the video, you kept wondering about uh, Romans 2, uh, 14 and 15. Everybody turn there uh, if you have a Bible. Keep going. Yeah, the, the law of God written on their hearts. So I went, you know, the sultan's heart obviously as well, I mean, <laughs> mainly. Um, and I wondered when that happened, if it was a point in time, or if you guys feel that it was a gradual thing or if it's more of a tangible thing the writing of, of, yeah, the, of God's uh, intrinsic law on the heart of human beings yeah when does it happen okay that's a great question yes because as, as you as Francis found out and it's hard for us to go back almost a thousand years as it were 800 years and realize that they didn't have TV they didn't have the mass culture they didn't have mass media so these kind of cross-cultural encounters they didn't well actually the Arabs and you know helped invent it and but that's another question they didn't have the transmissional power of knowledge that we have today. And so these encounters were like, wow, you know, like oh, stereotypes got busted, you know, all these things that they believed about each other. Suddenly they realized probably not weren't true, this dehumanization that we always do to the enemy. So the passage that she's talking about is in Romans 2, a very much underdeveloped uh, idea, thesis among the Christian community, I think, because it solves a lot of problems. Romans 2, Paul says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that the essence or the core or the heart or the quiddity of the law has been engraved upon their hearts, their thoughts bearing witness, their consciences alternatively, alternatively either accusing them or justifying them. So this is a phenomenon that goes on inside of every human being. So every human being has the essence of the Torah written upon their heart. And Zev taught you what the essence of the Torah is. Yes, it's loving God and loving other people. And then in the end, the master comes along, Jesus, and the repristinization of the Torah, what does he say? What's the golden rule? How should you conduct yourself? Just, no, 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 no. I mean, that's a good one. 
but the one that the master came up with. That's from the law. That's from the Torah. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, what? That's for the Christians. Love each other. Love one another as I have loved you. That's for Christians to do each other with among each other because it's hard to practice that form of love among not yet Christians. You can try. You can give them agape, but don't expect agape back yet because they don't have agape inside of them. So with not yet Christians, what did the master say? So this is what you should do. Yeah, that's from the Torah. <laughs> that's Deuteronomy 6.4. And Leviticus 19.18, that's love your neighbor. The master, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he comes, after all is said and done, he says, <laughs> I'm with you. Whatever you want other people to do to you, do to them. Or do unto others whatever you want to have done to you. This is, this is what? The golden rule. Okay. So, John that, all of that, is, is installed in the human heart, all human hearts, and then over time, culture bends and twists that law into grotesque and horrible forms, or some cultures actually adhere and listen to the higher parts of it and develop fairly well. That's, that's the, the history from God's point of view. All, yes, and now Zev, go ahead. No, I was... Oh, I'm sorry. So, of course the sultan had the law of God written on his heart. Now, what does that tell you, like when you're dealing with people from other religions and other cultures and have different viewpoints than you, when you're looking at them, you should be understanding what? You don't have to sit there and preach to them about ethics and, and the law. You should assume what? Give them the benefit of the doubt that they, that law that's been engraved in their heart is there and they're following it to some degree and they have inner conflict over it. And so why do you come along and like smash them? Like listen to them. What are you, what's going on inside of you? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, that answers another question that she really wants to know, and that is, where does this uh, reality called the image of God, which includes conscience and the development of a moral sense and the capacity to love, where does that come from? Is it something that God blows into the uh, embryo from outside, or is it something that God built inside of the human DNA so that as the human DNA develops, it was designed and built so that a creature like us would come about, a carbon-based life form with the ability to do spiritual work. Which one do you think? The, the, so that answers your question. So that means all human beings are starting like in that primal sense that they're coming up from this DNA thing and then they come up as a human and they have within them the thing called the image of God and the conscience and all of those good things. And then depending on the culture and the time and the place, those things can be either bent or enhanced. And in, in the Sultan's case, uh, I mean, what, what was the display that blew everybody's mind in that situation from the Sultan? What did he do? He fed them. He saved them. 
What, what does the Bible say? If your enemy is hungry, Paul says, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So here's the sultan displaying one of the highest forms of, and you could call it Christian virtue, but I would call it the way God designed us to be as human beings in the image of God. You see another human suffering, a person made in the image of God sees that human being and says, that's somebody that's precious in the eyes of God that's suffering, and therefore they will do something about it. It's inside the human to do it. Zev, go ahead. Okay. One of the things we have a tendency to absolutely emphasize, particularly in Protestant Christianity, is original sin. And what we fail to remember is that something came before that called original righteousness. The big debate is really just how deep did the fall affect the image and likeness of God? Because, you know, there are some people who act as if the image and likeness of God in the human being was totally destroyed by the fall. And I think that what Francis discovered is, no, it wasn't totally destroyed. It can be marred, it can be covered over, it can be distorted, but it's not gone. And this is one of the points C.S. Lewis makes in Mere Christianity is that he talks as the starting point, is that we all have this concept of the moral law. We all have this idea of, you know, standards of right and wrong. The only problem is we don't consistently keep them. Dustin. So, uh, one of the things that I picked up the most is this dehumanization of the other. Right. And one of the things that we struggle with in our thoughts is pointed out so clearly in Romans 2, and that is judgment when Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else for whatever you point out and judge the other for you are doing yourself. So when we dehumanize and when we cast judgment on the other, we are actually, we need to spend more time looking in the mirror. And what did and the really master what, say and, on that topic from well, the Sermon and, and, on the Mount? And, and, and really, and, well, I don't know what you're getting at. Oh, an eye for an eye. No, no. What? Take the log. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take the plank out of your, out of your eye. eye. Yeah, right. Before you take. And the I spec. think the other thing is, is we look at these reenactments that we see on the screen, and we look back on those days, and we say those crusaders made a mistake. And but I mean, we're doing the same thing today. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing over and over, and it's because we don't see our own fault in the mirror. We are dehumanizing people half a world away. This is how we end up in places like Vietnam. This is how we end up in Syria, in Iraq. This is how we end up in these military conflicts because we fail to see our own fault. Well, let's see. <laughs> Bernard proclaiming the Second Crusade in 1146. By the way, history buffs, where is Bernard of Clairvaux with reference to Francis of Assisi? 
the film that we saw last week, the events took place when? In the very early 1200s, 1202, right? So, uh, so we're going back now about 60 years before Francis. That would be like us going back to our grandfathers in World War II. Right? That's what would Bernard would be to Francis. And here's what Bernard said. Now, I'm sorry it's so small, but uh, on your handouts you can see, and I'm just going to read the bold ones. Hasten then to expiate, expiate, take care of your sins, pay for. Hasten then to pay for your sins by victories over the infidels, and let the deliverance of holy places be the reward of your repentance. Uh, second column. Uh, second paragraph. Christian warriors, he who gave his life for you today demands yours in return. Final quote at the bottom. The Christian, um, well, I better get some glasses. The Christian glories in the death of a pagan uh, because thereby Christ himself is glorified. What? This is the preeminent theologian of that era. This is the Billy Graham of that era. Am I judging him? Not at all. I'm pointing out as a historical fact that Christians have the capacity to believe this kind of stuff. That they think, hey, let's just go and waste him and God will be happy with us. That was what fueled the, the, the Crusades. So now we might not be so blatantly religious about it. And I, if I would, I don't, I don't want to make a, a political point here. Would you believe I'm not? Trust me, I'm not making a political point. But do you remember what uh, President Bush, second, the term he used right after 9-1-1 and then had to quickly pull it off the pu uh, public market? He, he said, we're going to have a response to this, and he called it something. Well, who, oh, who said this? A crusade. President Bush used the term crusade, and his advisors like, leapt on him like white on rice. And said, nine, nine, nine. Never use that word. Why? Because it invokes in the Muslim mind this stuff. And see, you know, Westerners look at this, and if you're kind of like me, at, at times I've said in my heart, what's this got to do with me? A bunch of Christians went a thousand years ago and slaughtered Muslims. Why do I have to deal with that? Why do I have to carry that? As it turns out, though, the Muslims haven't forgot it. See, to them, this is like yesterday's news. So then, the, when they hear the language being ratcheted up, the axis of evil, <clears throat> you know, all of those terms that we use, uh, yes, well, maybe they... they This is really hard to talk about without making political statements. Okay. But Zev told me something at lunch one time. Are you going to talk about what came into your mind when you've heard yeah. about Yes. Um, this is what comes from I hanging out we with him too much. I were in trouble with Operation Desert Shield before the shooting started. Because I was one of the few people who said, do Westerners understand how it looks to the Muslim world to be putting Christian soldiers in a line in the sand 
between Baghdad and Mecca, between the ancient capital of the Islamic empire and thus the, the primary holy space in Islam. Do they realize what that looks like? That move was the birth of Al-Qaeda. That move was the birth of Al-Qaeda. And that doesn't mean that it was necessarily the politically wrong thing to do to come to the aid of uh, Kuwait. But we fail so often to put ourselves in the place of our adversaries and to try to understand how our rhetoric and our actions come across. It is true, it is a, this is not a particularly American or Western fault. It is a human fault. Okay, this is one of the things they pointed out in the movie. Almost inevitably, one of the things that has to take place in order to, for a society to go to war, in order to overcome these inner inhibitions that all of us have of taking human life, is that the other has to be dehumanized. The other has to be dehumanized. And in any war situation, both sides do it. Both sides mm -hmm. do it. Um, you know, some of the things that we sometimes forget from history, um, I'm a great lover of Chinese history and culture. And in the 19th century, the central event in Chinese history was the Opium War. Anybody ever heard of the Opium War? Okay, the Opium War was the British, and guess what, the Americans came in with them, waging war against <coughs> Qing Dynasty China in order to force China to allow them to import opium into China. Why? Because that was the only way they could address their balance of trade and have a fair <coughs> you know, balance of payments for the things they were buying from the Chinese. Sound familiar? And one of the almost inevitable reactions to the Opium War was in some ways the bloodiest act of civil war that has ever taken place, the Taiping Rebellion, where some, I think, 20 million people were killed. And the Taiping, oddly enough, began with the well-intended but poorly executed act of an American missionary passing a tract to a Chinese. And when they went to war, they were going to war against two entities, the Qing Dynasty and foreign devils. So it's on both sides. But this is one of the things also where, you know, we really need to look at this sometimes. And I remember what something, the, the person who was the uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in Jerusalem in the Middle East said, you do not make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. 
All right, thanks. So, anybody else want to throw a comment or question out about the movie that you saw? No? All right. Uh, this might be a movie some of you might want to see. Uh, the Kingdom of Heaven, has anyone ever seen it? Uh, it's fairly representative, uh, accurate depiction of what the Crusaders encountered in Bernard's day during the Second Crusade. Um, I want to switch here now to um, Francis. I don't want to go through all the facts. Uh, you have them in the handout, but you saw his life story. Started out as a absolutely uh, brilliant uh, Sunday school and very righteous young man, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, Francis was not uh, particularly, uh, he had a very fun youth. Plus, thought war and violence was really cool like all young people do until he encountered it. So, it was through all that suffering has anyone ever seen Brother, Son, Sister, Moon? Franco Zeffirelli's uh, uh, portrayal of uh, Francis? It's, it's really cool. Um, done in 72. Uh, they, they shadow or, or paint uh, Francis with a little bit of hippie tones because that was the era. <laughs> By the way, St. Francis is the patron saint of what city? No, in America. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing that the movie, I think, really got at. When he first went there, and when he crossed those enemy lines, big step, huge step. But why did he go? Let's, let's, let's look at the core and heart of what he's doing at that point. He's going into that enemy camp and what is he there to do? Convert. And to convert, if that's your initial intention, if that is what you're going to do, that implies necessarily that the, that the discussion must start in your own mind with the premise, what? Right. Well, yes, that you're right. And also with another premise, that they're wrong. And uh, when you have that kind of heady mix given to most humans, uh, it, it seeps out like perspiration in the form of what? The subtle form of arrogance. It's there. And guess what? Not yet Christians can pick it up. If that's your main goal in, in, uh, in interacting with people. So, I mean, the record says, the movie alluded to it, the record says that the young Francis, God bless him, volunteered to the Sultan. I'll even lay in fire to prove to you that, the, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what kind of a mindset would do that? <laughs> you think that's a little arrogant? Um, you know, one of the temptations that the enemy gave to the master was what? Go up to the top of the temple and fling yourself down. If you don't get hurt, everybody will know what? You're, you're the Christ. So this nonsense of, I'm going to prove to you whose God is God in this, in this era, in this time, 
The sultan, thank God, being a rational person at that point, said, no, that's okay. That's not going to prove anything. John? Yes, sir. Uh, the way you phrase that is interesting because, let me ask you, does Islam have a concept of the Messiah? Yes, they do. There is a term in Islam, Masih, which is the Arabic equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach. Would you care to guess who Muslims identify as the Masih? What? Jesus. Nine. Nine. Jesus. Ooh. They actually think they Jesus is going to come back. They firmly believe that at the end of days, he will return. Now, they don't believe that Jesus is God, but they have a very high understanding of Jesus as not only a messenger of God, but as the Masih, the anointed. Yes. They also don't think he died on the cross, which is another glitch point, uh, because they think that such an elevated prophet, such a personage, God would never allow to be disgraced on the cross. So some person that looked like Jesus got put up there by mistake on, in his place and Jesus got away. But I'm, and I'm saying that to put them down or anything. I'm just saying these are glitch points of their understanding. But there's also a lot of agreement. So the thing is, like, if, you, if your first conversation with a Muslim is, hey, I got some good news for you. I want to show you uh, why your 1300-year tradition is wrong on the doctrinal point of whether Jesus died on the cross or not, it starts the conversation off on a fairly a belligerent note, right? And I want to just suggest to you, and this is very hard for me to do, but I'm going to take some time with this and stay with me. What's Matthew 28, 18 through 20 say? Anyone know from heart? It's in the book of Matthew, the fifth devar, the book, the book that we've been studying, right? Matthew, the climax of the book of Matthew, Jesus is on the mountain again with his disciples, and what does he say to them? Now, the traditional translation reads, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. On and on. Now, look at the, if you have your Bibles, look at it. You see there the way they translated that? Go into the world. What's the command of that verse? What's the command as it's written? What's the imperative? Go. Now, this is awkward. I hate doing this to people. But uh, at least Zev knows Greek, so he can at least be a second witness. The third witness for you to get this would be learn Greek yourself. Or go talk to somebody else that knows it. Because literally what it says, as you are going through the world, that's a participle. As you are going, wherever you go, as you proceed through the world, make disciples. What's the command? Make disciples. Wherever you are, make disciples. Now, if you understood it that way, it would be very shocking, and you'll see in just a minute, this is where Francis eventually got to. Instead of the notion and the emphasis being, I'm going to go to this person and tell them X, Y, Z, it is, as I'm going through the world, 
as things open up for me, what am I going to do? I'm going to make disciples. It's a totally different way of looking at the way you relate to not yet Christians. Do you, does that make sense to you? Yes. Now, do you want to ask me any questions about that? Yes, sir. You started with that. You have been all wrong for 13 years. You don't start anything, human being, with a negative. You would think, yeah. or at least be civil. <laughs> yeah, you would think. That's just basic. Um, I mean, they teach you that in Amway, right? You learn that in Amway, first lesson, right? Don't offend your uh, potential clients. Now, state. Ah! What about the missionaries? As you are going through the world, he doesn't say. Don't go. He just says, as you, the implication is as you were led through the world, as you were going, wherever you may go, make disciples. So you can still be, in quote, a missionary, but the emphasis is different. You're not coming into a culture, boom, and flat out telling them, we're here, and you're wrong, and we're right, and, uh, you know. Ah! Now, wait, you just hit gold. He just said, you go in and you, and you say, feed them. How about if you just go in and what? Be, what did the master teach us in this course? As you're going through the world, before you start making disciples, maybe you ought to do something. What should you do? Uh, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And as that happens, as that, you know, that's sincere from the heart. It's not sales, you know. It's like, I'm going to just do the right thing by you because it's the right thing to do. And then if the opportunity opens, why did you do that or whatever? Yeah, John, I just wanted to add two things. Okay. I had the great good fortune, or misfortune as the case may be, of attending both the beginning and advanced Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And the one thing that they emphasized, and this is the Billy Graham School of Evangelism, was not street corner Bible thumping, was not even crusade evangelism. It is the one-on-one -on -one relationship that begins with being a friend in order to win a friend. Or to put it in the terms, you have to be Christ to your neighbor before you can preach Christ to your neighbor. Okay? And that is so crucial. The second thing that um, I forgot. <laughs> well, I'm glad that happens to you as well. <clears throat> but, but right on point, to your point, is this. Look, Francis, after meeting Islam. Oh, I remember now. Okay. <clears throat> um, I had the great good fortune to be married to Carrie Stuman, who studied anthropology at Middle Tennessee State, and her professor in cultural anthropology there, Marilyn Wells, really hates missionaries because she sees a lot of what they do as cultural genocide. And unfortunately, I think she's right. But there was one missionary that she liked, and she actually showed this in a film. He was a Mary Knoll missionary somewhere in the Amazon in South America. And they were having a parade, one of these parades that they sometimes have, you know, in Catholic circles, 
of the virgin being, you know, a procession for the virgin. Only in this case, the statue of the virgin had sweet potatoes attached all over her body. Because the original primary goddess of this tribe was the sweet potato goddess. So what he, what he basically said is, God is already here. My task is to discern how he discloses himself. And so he understood, okay, these people worship the sweet potato goddess. Well, let's take a statue of the virgin and put sweet potatoes on her. Okay? That is acculturating the gospel to the thought world of the people among whom. And it gives them the dignity of saying, I'm not here to destroy your culture. I'm here to give you an added dimension to it. Okay, well, thank you. And also, that's exactly what Francis came to. Uh, through his encounter with the world of Islam, Islam, Francis of Assisi moved into a new horizon. Francis's changed horizon, his attitude of conversion, finds expression in chapter 16 of the earlier rule. What did he then say? <clears throat> Bold print. He doesn't speak of martyrdom, but he tells his brothers who wish to go as missionaries to the Muslims that they should testify to their Christian faith how? By what? Being. Like, in essence, what did we learn from this course? It would be Francis would say, oh, cool, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you want to go and live in Turkey or whatever, Saudi, if you want to go hang out there and... and, and live the Christian life there, cool, go there. But how, what should you do? Just live the Sermon on the Mount. Don't, don't you know, start a conversation and try to preach on every occasion. Just live among them, and as the, as the opportunities develop, uh, they will. What do you how think many, about... How many people know Francis's famous dictum about sharing the gospel? Share the gospel, if necessary, use words. Thank you so much because you just segued me into the last part of today's talk. I, I did. It was <laughs> um, okay, so that's a fantastic point. And now if you have a Bible, could you go to Colossians 4, 2 through 6? If you don't have a Bible, I anticipated you wouldn't, and I'll have the text on the screen in a minute. Uh, but the passage of Colossians 4, 2 through 6, I want you to look at it, and today now what we have to do is synthesis. Let's look at what Paul told his followers to do as a way of being in the world, and let's see if it resonates with Francis and resonates with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before we even get started, I, I have to label this the Christ within you way of sharing Jesus. Why? Because it's taken from Colossians, and Colossians has as its ma major thesis, its main thesis, this. 
the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but has been now disclosed to those who belong to Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What did Paul teach people where Christ was? He's in you. Then, to make the point even further, <clears throat> in Colossians, a couple of verses, all of the fullness of God is in Christ, and Christ is in each Christian, and thus, logically, that means what? If all of God is in Christ, and Christ is in the Christian, then what? Think again. If all of, Christ is in, if all of God is in Christ, and Christ is in you, that means what's in you? All of God. Now, you have to ponder this. In fact, you even have to go to a word that is invented by a science fiction writer uh, in uh, this great book about Martians. You have to grok this. To grok something means to understand it from the inside. What is, the, what is this text telling you? If you're a Christian here today, you are walking around with what? All of God is inside of you. You're a walking cathedral. Not because uh, that you're cool or Presbyterian or whatever. Because why? <coughs> because you're... No, no, because if you're a Christian, then God comes and lives inside of you in all of God's fullness. Not by, not by works. What are, you guys are Presbyterians? By what? Grace. By grace through faith. Just as a gift, God says here... You don't have to earn my presence in your life. I'm coming in by faith. Beautiful. So now, a walking cathedral goes through the world, and this is what Paul taught in um, Colossians. How can you uh, walk in this world in a way and, and share Jesus' love without being uh, offensive and, and starting wars? On your knees, on your feet, by your lips, three Christ in you ways. Now here's the passage. Dustin, look at the first part. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being alert and thankful, praying for all of us that God would open a door for our message so that we can speak about the mystery of Christ in understandable ways. Now we're going to unpack each one of these. So we'll just... But what's the first thing he says? You, you want to share Jesus with other people? You want to share Jesus with Muslims? First, pray. Second, walk in wisdom with those who are outside the faith, and he means those who are not yet Christians. Making the most of every opportunity. Walk in wisdom. That's the second concept. Third, speak with grace, season with salt, in order that you will know how to give each person an answer, or an answer to each person you talk with. And we're going to take these apart one by one. So, what's the first thing he tells you to do? Essentially, pray for God to open doors, which means to everyone's great relief who understands this, that the Christian is not called to do what? Smash doors open, be rude, force their way in. We're just called to do what? Pray for people, and then when those doors seemingly open, then you... Then you you go, yeah, okay, God opened something up for me. Yes.
Right, you don't want to go to, um, I was thinking about this this morning. God bless, I, I've been in a, a number of different Asian Christian contexts, and God bless all of them. But I want to tell you something, you know, because of the Asian mindset to be very particular, very meticulous, very orderly, if you teach them legalistic Christianity, ah, you can produce what the master said to the Pharisees. You transverse, you converse, you go over land and sea to make one convert. And after you have made them, what did Jesus say? You make them twice the son of Hades that you are. Ah. So when Christians go into these cultures and teach this legalism to people who are already inclined to be legalistic, you're ratifying something that's completely false. Okay, so your point's well taken. We, we are not to uh, do anything other than give ourselves to prayer and then take these opportunities as we are presented them. Let's look at the second one. Walking with Jesus leads to opportunities to share Jesus. Walk in wisdom. What is wisdom in the book of Colossians, Zev? It is a person. Colossians 2.3, for in Christ all the fullness of God's treasures of wisdom are in Christ. It's a, wisdom is not a thing. It's, when he says walk in wisdom, he literally means walk in Jesus, letting Jesus control you. Okay? Uh, now, so you're hanging yes. out with not yet Christians, with those outside the faith, making the most of every opportunity. So when, when you're with not yet Christians, he just says what? You're the cathedral of God. The fullness of God is inside of you. Your instructions for the master are what? Treat other people the way you want to be treated. You got the fullness of God in you. What does Paul say? Just, just live, just walk, just be. Be how Jesus would cause you to be. And then, what does he say? Making the most of every opportunity. There's a little hint there. What's that implying? That as you're allowing yourself as the cathedral of God to walk through the world and shine the light of Christ, what the master call you to be, salt and light, as you do these things, there are going to be opportunities for you to share when people ask you, yes, sir. Reminds me of a, a story again about a missionary who was having a hard time. He was somewhere, I think, in Papua New Guinea. And the problem is every time he tried sharing the story of Jesus, they were getting an odd message because in their particular culture, a person who betrays another is the stronger of the two. So they kept getting the idea that Judas was the hero of the story. Until he went to a ceremony where they were being reconciled to a tribe with whom they had had conflict. And there was this odd ceremony where a child was being ceremonially kidnapped by representatives of one tribe from the other. And he said, well, what is this? He says, that's the peace child. That's the person who represents the peace between our tribes. And whoever kills or betrays a peace child, that person is the worst of all. And he said, oh, Jesus was a peace child. 
Ah! They got the point. Brilliant. Okay, now third point that Paul talks about is how we talk determines, this is my conclusion, how we talk determines if we get to talk about sweet Jesus' love. Here's what Paul said. Speak with grace, my comments in parentheses, how Jesus would talk. I don't know, what do you think speak with grace means? Uh, seasoned with salt, what do you think that means? So he literally said, let your speech be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. That's how you should talk in, as you walk through the world. So that, and then he puts this last thing in there, so that you will know how to give an answer to each person you talk with. And the implication of that statement is what? So that you will give an answer, that must mean what? They ask a question. What would they ask a question about you? Now you've got to put this whole thing together, remember? You started out that morning, you're praying, and you're asking God for what? Open doors. Would you please open a door? I'm going to live... And then you go out into the world and you do the best. We all fail. You're letting Jesus control you. You step out. You fall into the flesh. You confess. You repent. You ask the Lord to take over your life again. And then you go forward, right? Or that doesn't happen to you guys. <laughs> so you're living the Christian life. And, and then when you do get conversationally engaged with not yet Christians, when you're talking, what is flowing out of your mouth ought to be what? You know, yeah, salty, salty language. It should be nice. I mean, it should be so radically different that people would like, what? 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 And then the implication is that these people are going to say something like, I've noticed that you're a very odd person. Why is that? <laughs> uh, they're going to say something to you that is a little click that the Holy Spirit's been you know, remember we studied all this. The Holy Spirit's always persuading people. The Holy Spirit will be persuading these people. Look at this creature over here. What's with that person? Ask that person a question. This is how God works. You don't have to slam. You don't have to be rude. You just have to be. Yes, okay. Susan. And then Zeb. Yeah, this isn't a... This isn't... I don't want to put the tag in. This isn't a thing that you say... Oh, you want to ask me? Oh, here, look, I've got to give you the four spiritual laws right now. No, you just sit down or whatever you're doing and, and you just let it flow. It might be something that you never even thought about that they, that they care about. Yes. Uh, how many people here have heard of a little event called Vatican II? How many people know who was the primary theologian of Vatican II? An extremely, probably the greatest Catholic theologian of the 20th century, the Jesuit theologian, Karl Rahner. Basically, the description for what happened at Vatican II is they said the Rhine flowed into the Tiber. He was one of those Rhineland theologians. But what Karl Rahner, one of his major contributions to Catholic theology, was that for centuries, Catholics had emphasized over and over again the distinction between what they call uncreated and created grace. Okay. Now, you don't need to necessarily understand that, except that what Karl Rahner did is said, that's a false distinction. All grace is uncreated. And what is uncreated grace? It is nothing other than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
So when you speak with grace, it means speak as the Spirit is filling and speaking through you. Be led by the Spirit. It's not up to you, Jesus said to his disciples. Don't worry about what you're going to say. What you say will be given to you. And you have to have the same confidence here. If you're filled with the Spirit of Christ, you will speak as Christ wants to speak. Susan. True what? Of meekness. The true meaning of meekness is... But not, intru not intrusive. Not shoving. You are getting yourself, your ego, out of the way so that God can work in and through you. You're ready. You're asking God for opportunities. Yes. Good. All right, we have three minutes left. What is the synthesis between all these characters that we've been studying? Jesus, Tolstoy, we started off at the beginning of the course with Tolstoy, introduced Francis now. What's the thread that connects all these? What, what are they all saying? Remember the course's name, Mountain View. What Jesus saw, what's the second part? <laughs> What he wants us to see. So what, what are we supposed to see from these people that are teaching us? What do they want us to see? Number one, image of God is in everyone. Everyone's a precious creature of God, despite their ideological or political uh, associations. Yeah, Everybody's in the image of God. Absolutely, love is at the heart and core of the whole thing. As God loves, that's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. We are to go into the world and be as displays of God's love. Uh, Francis uh, showed us through his own life. He changed. He decided this, this is a better way to relate to not yet Christians. Be ready, but don't push. What's the world? Well, you know what we could do, though? It'd be interesting. What do you see, Dr. Smith? What is it that you see? No. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the world that we go into. I'm contending that the Master did not necessarily mean for us to go all through the world, specifically invading countries to convert them, what he meant for the church to be was the cathedrals of God, filled with God, and wherever you happen to be led to go. And if God says, you know, I'd like you to go and live in Moscow, that's cool, you can go and live there. But the way you would do it is not, I'm coming in here as a missionary to tell you guys how you're wrong. You'd go in there and do what? You just 
Go in there and live out the Sermon on the Mount the best you can. And as God opens the doors, you tell people about the sweet love of Jesus. Yes, sir. Two little quotes I'd like to leave you with. One is, of all the unlikely sources, Franz Kafka, who said, the only reality is the concretely real human being, our neighbor, whom God puts in our path. The only reality is the concretely real human being whom God puts in our path. And the second from the Welsh poet, William Cooper Powys, who said, no one can consider themselves truly civilized unless they find each and every person without exception as of deep and startling interest. So, all right, God bless you. Have a great day. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these great Christians and above all for yourself. Uh, among other things, we learned today that you're in us. We've been learning all year that despite our intentions, we cannot do these things on our own power. So we ask, Lord, again, that you would help us to yield ourselves to you as we go into this world, to be salt, to be light, to be the love of God that many people have never even conceived of or understood yet. Thank you for what you're going to do in us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, bye-bye. Have a nice day. Sorry about the cat.